The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Father, we thank you for every good gift that comes from your hand. And now we thank you particularly for your word, the Bible, and for your living word, your Son, about whom it speaks. Teach us, we pray, to be more closely conformed to him as we hear this. Draw us deeply into your word, we pray, to uncover things hidden there which we have not seen before and to be shaped, therefore, in hidden ways in which we have not yet been sanctified and made like Jesus. Have mercy on us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit. And it would be great help to me if you have a Bible, if you're able to take it out. Uh, Also, I suspect you'll find it very useful to have handy this map for reasons that will become obvious in a few minutes' time. Thank you, Mrs. Loki, for... Uh, tinkering with all the printing. This is on the inside of the inserts uh, for your orders of worship. And as I'll explain in a few minutes, we're going to be jumping around the Bible a little today. Uh, We're going to be trying to get our bearings as we embark on this new uh, letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. This is the first of a series, Lord willing, that I'll give on this letter. And we'll also be getting our bearings geographically as we sort of figure out what was going on and I hope you'll find that as we dig into some of that backstory, uh, the content and shape of this letter will become more luminous and uh, clear to you. But before we get into all that, I want to highlight a pastoral, uh, not concern, something I've become aware of pastorally more and more and increasingly in the last few weeks and months. I keep meeting people who are lacking in role models, particularly people who are lacking in parental role models, but also in other ways. It could be the kind of caricatured or fairly easy to understand picture of a young man who grew up without a father or a a woman who never had as a role model, a a mother who was around and a a good Christian role model. Sometimes it's not so much younger men and women, it might be older people as well. And sometimes it takes people quite a long time, not quite a long time to realize what they've not had. As they start to get to know other people who have benefited from uh, Christian life lived before them and they start to realize they never had that. Or maybe you did have that and this is a more subtle form of the same problem. There are some people, frankly, who've always had a great um, parental role model, but they weren't paying attention. Uh, Or maybe a great parental role model, but for reasons of the Lord's peculiar providence, you you didn't get to spend as much time with your mum or your dad because of work or shortened life or whatever it was. But one way or another, you are starting to realize that you're missing out on something It's something that has become more and more clear to me in meeting not just people here, but people elsewhere as well. And one of the most common results of this 
is a lack of what I think I want to call mature Christian instinct. A person might know um, Christian teaching quite well, and they might be capable, when they're paying attention, so to speak, capable of being wise and thoughtful and godly and gracious, at least when they're concentrating on it. When those moments of clarity and self-awareness arise, you, can, you, you know the good you ought to do, and you're able to do it. But then when pressure increases of one kind or another, you're tired, or you're frustrated, or you're you know, a conversation has already gone sideways slightly. You've not got the instincts hardwired deep down to know how to bring it back to where it ought to be. You're lacking in mature Christian, a kind of center of gravity that is centered on the Word. You can walk in the Word, yes, but your center of gravity is not located there. And so you see this, for example, you see it in marriages. And, and often... You see, a marriage where everything's going fine quite a lot of the time, or maybe all the time, certainly all the time that you see them. Because, of course, husband and or wife, they're both on, they're concentrating at that time on the task of being a great husband or being a great wife. But then they get tired at the end of the week or they get ratty with each other and suddenly the relationship can go skate miles off the rails very quickly. You see it with young children, similar things, you know. Pastor comes round. And you think, my goodness, these angelic little darlings. <laughs> and dad's tearing his hair out, and mum's just given up, doesn't know what to do anymore. And, and you realize that, the, yes, they, these kids are great kids when they're paying attention, but they've not had the stabilizing influence of deeply ingrained, long-term role models from Christian parents or from Christian and anybody else. And to be honest, there is not an easy way out of that. There is no easy way out of that. But it's not hopeless. I'm here this morning to tell you that if you're willing to pay attention, if you're willing to concentrate, never overestimate what you can do in a year, but never underestimate what the living God could do in five. If you're willing to think, mm, what? how would I really have to reshape the way that I go about all my relationships and all the tasks of my daily life? If you're willing to do that, there's hope for everybody. You do need a new role model. You need somebody or something to follow. You need somebody to teach you those foundational Christian instincts. And so I give you 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. The church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I present to you your new big brother, your new big sister. Well, in fact, a whole church full of big brothers in the Lord and big sisters in the Lord. And what's really intriguing about these people is that, frankly, they didn't have great models either. As we'll see, the Apostle Paul spent a really very short amount of time with them, but something happened, something happened that dislodged them from the terrible background that they could so easily have followed, going along with their Christ-rejecting countrymen and women. Something happened to dislodge them, to make them more than just rescued from bad role models, but actually great role models to other people who had so much more than them. And so I hope that among many other things, and we're going to get to some of the other things later today and in future weeks, I hope that among many other things, this letter will give hope to those of you who are... You, Everything's fine when you're paying attention, but so much of the time 
you can't pay attention the whole time and you're realizing you're lacking the Christian instincts to be the kind of man or the kind of woman you wish you could be more consistently. These people are truly remarkable. It's not that they're perfect. The Apostle Paul's got to put the boot in once or twice. But these people are, I hope, your new big brothers and sisters who could lead you that next step of faithfulness. My plan today, I'm going to start with these first two verses. I've got a couple of observations from them. And then the second of those observations will lead us into the backstory of this relationship that Paul has with this community in Thessalonica in modern Greece. That's going to take most of our time. And that's, if you've not brought your Bible today, well, sorry, find somebody who has, because we're going to be giving you paper cuts, flicking around the book of Acts and back into 1 Thessalonians, the first letter, trying to give you a sense of the big picture, the backstory of Paul's relationship with this church and what this church was like. And then from that, more briefly towards the end, I want to draw out three characteristics of this church that will at least set us on the way to, okay, here are some things that if I'm going to reorient my life to relearn those Christian instincts that I didn't learn when I was five or 16 or 20, here's where I could begin. You with me? So let me just jump right in uh, to the first couple of verses. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, look at this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just worth mentioning before we jump into some of the details. Something, an aside in terms of the flow of the argument of the letter, but something foundational to Christian theology. In verse 2, you have the roots of Trinitarian theology. Just look with me. Grace to you and peace from whom? God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one source of grace and peace. And that source is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see the roots of Trinitarian theology? A one God, the source of grace and peace, in whom we can find personal distinction, Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone's scratching their heads over there because they're thinking, I thought he said Trinity. This looks to me a bit like binity. I see the Father, right? And I can see the Son. Where on earth is the Spirit? Look again. Can you see the Spirit? Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit is God's grace and peace. I'm convinced that Paul the Apostle here didn't slip up with what would later become kind of Nicene, mature, uh, patristic, and later reformed Trinitarian theology and only mention two of the persons. Don't be silly. Of course he's not. What's actually going on is something far more profound Grace and peace are not just things that you experience. Grace is not a kind of stuff that's dispensed to us. And peace is not just a state of mind. In Christian theology, both grace and peace are personal. And they're gifts of the Spirit. And they're gifts of the Spirit because it's the Spirit personally himself who is that grace and peace to us. And where does the Spirit come from? It proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Remember? Because you've all done your Nicene, or some of you have done your Nicene uh, historical theology. So, just as the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and from the Son, so here, grace and peace come from the Lord Jesus, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see? Hidden in the background here, if you want to talk more about Trinitarian theology, stick your hand up at Forum and say, hey, can we talk more about Trinitarian theology? And I'll tell you about Rana's rule. Have you heard of Karl Rana? Ah, oh, there we are. You've got lessons. Give me t- 10 seconds on Karl Rahner. Karl Rahner is a 20th century Trinitarian theology. And all you're thinking, theologian, and you're all thinking, 
20th century Trinitarian theologian. Isn't that the kind of theological Nazareth? Can anything good come out of here? Uh, well, something good did. Karl Rahner clarified what people had taught for centuries before, which is that the way that God is in eternity, the immanent Trinity, he called it, is reflected in how he is in space and time, the economic trinity. God, God at work in the world accurately represents God as he is in eternity. And so when you see, or rather, no, you don't see, when you experience the grace of God and the peace that passes all understanding, coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, what you're experiencing is Trinitarian life. Because you're experiencing a kind of created analog of how God is in himself in eternity. The Father and the Son breathing forth the Spirit in eternity and the Father and the Son in space and time breathing the Spirit into you so you experience grace and peace. There we are. So we can, okay, we could run down that rabbit hole as long as you like. But that's the first thing, just an observation from here. Second, who's it from, this letter? Paul's first, sorry, second letter to the Thessalonians or the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, it says in my Bible, if you've got a King James Bible, it'll probably say the same thing. Uh, the the title of the books in the Bible, even in the King James Version, gasp, I have to tell you, are not inspired. Just look closely at verse 1. Who's it from? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Not just Paul. Now, of course, it gains its apostolic authority from its association with Paul the Apostle, the converted Pharisee, uh, Damascus Road, all that kind of stuff. But it's not just from one person. And throughout the letter, actually, you've got lots of references to us and we. Chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Um, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, um, speaks of our being gathered together and we ask you, brothers. And then chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 1. And then he distinguishes, Paul distinguishes himself notably right at the end of chapter 3, verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is how I write. So here, at the end, he's, he's speaking, so to speak, authoritatively off his own bat, but throughout, it's actually from all three of them. And now, doesn't that make you, doesn't that make you just a little bit intrigued? Just that, like, who's Sylvanus? Who's Timothy? Now, you probably know who Timothy is, right? Because Timothy, you've got two, two letters written to him and named after him from Paul in the uh, New Testament. But Sylvanus, who he? Silvanus, elsewhere called Silas, is mentioned about 16 times in the New Testament, 12 times in the book of Acts, where Luke, the writer of Acts, calls him Silas. Paul seems to have been a bit more formal. Silvanus, give him his proper full name. He's like, Paul, to kind of person who'd always be calling me Pastor Jeffrey. You know, even after a, you know, a long night around the campfire and a glass of whiskey, it's still Pastor Jeffrey. It's like a long name. He calls him Silvanus, refers to him four times uh, in his letters. And I want to tell you now the backstory of this relationship between Paul and Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy, and the church in Thessalonica. And I think it's, it's one of the most wonderful developing uh, narratives in the New Testament. And from this, we'll then be able to start drawing together some, some threads which will take us back to where we started. This role model that we also, frankly, many of us, if not all of us so desperately need. So let's think about the backstory to this letter. You know, if you've read any um, New Testament history or if you just read the book of Acts, that Paul the Apostle went on a number of what have been called historically missionary journeys. 
Starting from Antioch in Syria, he went out a total of four times, if you count the last one, when he went to Rome. And his first one, come back with me in the book of Acts, come back with me, uh, takes us all the way to chapter, well, it begins in chapter 13, but go back to chapter 15. And if you've got, if you've got this map, actually, I'll show you on this map. Um, the first missionary journey isn't shown on this map. This is the map of the second, which is more kind of central to this letter. But basically what happens is that they start in Antioch here, and they go to Cy- Cyprus, go to Salamis, then Paphos. Then they go up to Perga, Lystra, uh, Lystra Iconium, Derby, and then they go all back, the way back the other way. They get to Atalia, back in Pamphylia down there, and then they get a boat, go all the way back to Antioch. That's the first missionary journey. So it's quite a short one, and it's in that kind of corner, the northeastern Mediterranean and Cyprus. That's Paul's first missionary journey. Now, this is where Silas, Silvanus, enters the narrative of the New Testament. If you're in um, Acts chapter 15, yeah, basically what happens in this missionary journey, lots of great things happen, including the Gentiles accepting the gospel, which causes all manner of heartburn back in Jerusalem because there's a whole bunch of people who say they need to be made to be circumcised and they keep the law of Moses. And Paul's like, I don't think that's such a good idea. So they have this big debate about it in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15. And the upshot is, no, they don't have to be circumcised and they don't need to keep the law of Moses. Phew, that's a relief, isn't it? Yes, and all the gentlemen really understand why that would be the case. But it's a relief in lots of other ways. It means that the gospel that can now go unhindered to all the, the Gentile nations of the world. And so, in Acts chapter 15, um, uh, verse 22, once this letter has been uh, composed, um, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to take the news of the, the fact that the gospel is now open to Gentiles as well as Jews. Gentiles just means um, non-Jewish people. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So now you've got a feel for who he is. He's a a respected and well-known member of the community. And so off he goes to take this letter to Antioch, which is up slightly north of Jerusalem. Now, sometime after that, Paul's second missionary journey begins. Turn with me to the end of chapter 15. Just over the page if you've got the same Bible as me. After a few days, this is Acts 15.36, after some days, that's probably after several months, actually, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are doing. So this is really important. What they're planning to do is just to visit all the places they went before. They've done this little circuit, Antioch, Cyprus, Cilicia, and then back through Pamphylia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They're planning to do the same thing again. You've got to keep that in mind because you notice where they actually went was somewhere very different. So something strange must have happened to change their plans. Come to that in a couple of minutes. So chapter 15, verse uh, 37. So Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with the work. Now, this is a fascinating backstory. Ask me about Mark in forum if you want to hear about him. Uh, he basically he, he got to one point in the, the first journey and saw what was ahead of him and thought, no way. And just basically scarpered to go back to live with his mum. Now Barnabas was his cousin. And so Barnabas, it seems, in the maybe year or two that had elapsed between that happening and, and the second missionary journey starting, Barnabas had a bit more sympathy for him, but Paul was like, uh-uh, no way. I need to take somebody reliable. Who should I take who's going to be reliable? Back to Acts 15, verse uh, 39. So this big, sharp disagreement arose. Barnabas took Mark and went to Cyprus, and S- Paul chose 
Silas and departed. And it's interesting, what they did was they went opposite directions. They both wanted to visit all the churches they'd been to, but Barnabas and Mark went clockwise, the same way they'd gone before. Paul and Silas said, we want to go to the same place, but we don't want to bump into you lot. We're going to go anti-clockwise. So they went north through Syria, and now where you are is on this map. Can you see it? They go from Antioch up through Syria to Tarsus, Paul's hometown, and they start heading towards these cities, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and so on. Now, that's what the next few chunks of the book of Acts are all about. The next chapter, really, chapter 16, the first place they come to where they stop is Derby, chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. You can, you can follow where we're going on that, the, the little arrow that's drawn on the, the map in your orders of worship. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. All the, all the people in the towns nearby thought this Timothy chat was fantastic. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So that's, that's a, another tangled tale that the book of Acts dumps on our plate, because we've just learned in chapter 15 that you don't need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. But Timothy, in spite of that, for some reason, which is presumably highlighted here, was willing to undergo circumcision in order to not be a stumbling block to Jews, maybe, which tells you something about Timothy's courage and willingness to sacrifice for the gospel. Anyway, so they went on their way through all the cities and they delivered for them the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. See, basically what they're doing, they're going back through all those, those places they've been. They're sharing the good news that you don't need to keep the law of Moses, even though Timothy, well, he sort of did, and encouraging the churches as they went. And then they come in chapter 16, verse 6, to the point where geographically, something unexpected happens. Look with me at chapter 16, verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, where's that? Just look at your maps again. Phrygia, and you, I don't know whether you can see this. Phrygia is like bang in the middle of the page right there. And Galatia is, well, the, the, the label is up there, but actually it's this whole region. So when they go north west from Iconium towards Antioch in Pisidia, and then they keep going... They keep going north and keep going east. They're going through Phrygia and Galatia. Now, why would they do that? Because that's not the route they'd taken before. If they were going to go the route they'd taken before, they'd have gone south to Cyprus and then back home to Antioch. But something happened, chapter 16, verse 6. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's down to the south. So they can't go south. But when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which is to the north, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So what are they going to do? So it's fascinating. They're there in somewhere around sort of north of Antioch. They want to go south into Asia. Spirit won't let them. They want to go north into uh, Bithynia. Spirit won't let them. They've just come from the east where they've got to go. Well, they've got to go west then. So they did. They kept going west, kept going west towards Mycenae, and they came to Troas. Now we follow that in the, the text of Acts. When they come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them. That's verse 7, verse 8. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And now you discover why the Spirit of God would not allow them to go north and would not allow them to go south. Verse 9. A vision 
appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, you can see where Macedonia is. Macedonia is right up here in the... Do I keep getting my east and west mixed up, by the way? Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, you can figure it out. If I say left and right, does that make it easier? It's so much easier for me. But I'm sure you can untangle it. Macedonia is up here northwest. Right. (laughs) Right? And the cities that are there, you've heard of some of them. Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, you're about to hear of them. Thessalonica is the capital of the region of Macedonia. It's not where the... the, um, the country of Macedonia is now, it's a different place. This is in what is now Greece. And so this man from Macedonia urged them to come over and help them. Who's that? I don't know. Vision of somebody. And when, verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so, verse 11 and 12, they set sail from Troas, came to Samothrace, next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So can you see what's happened geographically? They've done this trip once, first missionary journey. They wanted to do it again in reverse order, but they got diverted by the Spirit of God, ended up all the way over here in what is actually a wonderful holiday destination. My wife and I can testify firsthand. It's absolutely a beautiful place. But they were not there on holiday. They were there preaching the gospel to the people up in Macedonia. Now, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail about Philippi, the first place they came to. You've all read about the uh, Lydia, purple cloth lady. You've all read about the, the young girl who had the spirit of divination, and Paul gets so irritated, it's like, come out of her, and the spirit leaves her. And then everyone gets really angry because their hope of making money has been taken from them. So they have Paul and Silas thrown in prison which they're not really supposed to do because they're Roman citizens. And so the spirit comes and lets them out. The jailer's about to kill himself, and Paul says, don't, 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 it's okay, we're here. So the jailer is then converted. When the magistrates and the rulers of the city realize what they've done, they're like, oops, we went and put a Roman citizen in prison. Probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, Tell Paul, we'll let you out, and don't tell anybody. And Paul's like, no. (laughs) We're Roman citizens, you bang us up in prison. And you had us beaten publicly when we hadn't even had a trial. You can come and escort us out, and uh, we'll leave the city when we're ready. But for a while, we're going to go hang out with the church and go say hello to Lydia. And that's what they basically do at the end of chapter 16. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. We'll go on our schedule. Thank you very much. You see? So, but Philippi was not an easy place to be. And they go on from there, and they come finally to Thessalonica. Look with me. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now... When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I'm going to read just here all the way down to verse 9 because this is the most detail we get about Thessalonica in the New Testament, really, apart from the letters. Here it goes. And Paul went in, and as, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set up, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, who's probably a Jewish leader, probably not the synagogue ruler, but a, a man of the synagogue, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, well, they dragged Jason, dragged Jason out instead, and some of the brothers, and shouted, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. 
And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then basically, verse 10, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away by night. Got to get out of here now. Notice a few things about what happens in Thessalonica. The first thing is the length of time that they stayed there. They did not stay there very long. This is not a church like in Corinth, we'll see later, where Paul got to spend a year and a half kind of building the congregation up and teaching them and so on. Some people, look at verse um, 2, some people suggest they were only there for three Sabbath days. Now, it, it's, it's probable, actually, they were there a bit longer than that. There are some, several reasons why this is so. First is... Um, Paul remarks to the Philippian church down the road, like 100 miles away, that more than once the Philippians sent help to him when he was in Thessalonica. And it's kind of hard to imagine how there'd have been time for messages to go back and forth 100 miles away if they'd only stayed there for like three weeks to get help to him more than once. Probably he stayed there a bit longer then. That would account also for why his needs increased. We also know that it wasn't just Jewish people that he witnessed to, because it mentions here uh, a number of devout Greeks. And we know as well that Paul makes a big point of having worked among them as an example for them to follow, and have built relationships with them. He says in 1 Thessalonians, his first letter, we didn't just share the gospel with you. This wasn't like a kind of evangelistic leaflet drop. We shared our lives with you. And so the picture you get is probably... For a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, Paul, the apostle, is there, working like crazy just to get enough food to eat, living the kind of life before these, mostly Greek initially, but then later Jewish people that would testify of the goodness of Christ to them, providing for his own needs, receiving help occasionally from the Philippians, because it's kind of hard to get a job in a new town if you don't know anybody and nobody knows you. And then, eventually, what happens is he's invited to the synagogue to preach, and he preaches there three successive Sundays, shortest sermon series you could imagine ever doing, and then they boot him out because the Jews became jealous, and they realized that the gospel he was proclaiming threatened their position of preeminence in the community, which is why they're jealous of him, okay? So then, where to go next? Well, we can just whiz through the, the next um, chapter or so. They go to Berea, where... It looks like the uh, reception initially is more positive. The Jews are of more noble character than the Thessalonians um, in so chapter 17, verse 11. But what happens is the Thessalonian Jews come down to Berea and start stirring up trouble there. So he's had to leave Thessalonica in a hurry. Now he has to leave Berea in a hurry as well. Uh, and he's already left Philippi in a hurry, so the poor guy is getting pretty exhausted by all this. He goes down to Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him. He gives the famous... Areopagus address in Acts 17. That's a bit of Acts apart from chapter 1 and 2 that we've all heard of, Acts 17. But Saul and so Silas and Timothy haven't yet arrived, so he goes to Corinth. Eventually, eventually, they catch up with him in Corinth. Chapter 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, chapter 18, verse 5, Paul is now in Corinth. You can see where it is on the map. Corinth is right down here in Achaia, Achaia. And Paul, at that point, is busily uh, proclaiming the gospel to anybody who will give him half an ear. Now, just pause there for a second. Are you with me, the kind of story so far? They've had the benefit of Paul's preaching for a few weeks. 
They've been in a place where that preaching has stirred up all kinds of opposition, so hostile that Paul himself had to leave, just like he had to leave from several other places. Paul now arrives in, um, uh, in Corinth. How do you think Paul's feeling? Everywhere he goes, as soon as the message starts bearing fruit, he starts to see a handful of new converts being formed, people believing that Jesus is the Christ. As soon as that happens... Again and again, opposition is stirred up to the point where he has to leave the city. Now, just pause about that a second. Paul is not the kind of guy to run away. Okay, he, he would leave if he thought his life was in danger, and he left Philippi, and then he left Thessalonica, and then he left Berea in the same state of mind, presumably worried not just now about his own safety, but the safety of the people he'd left behind. He gets to Corinth. Actually, we know what he felt like when he got to Corinth because he tells us, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And what's he trembling for? Well, we know that as well from the Corinthian correspondence because he says, I've got all this concern for all the churches. There he is in Corinth. There's nobody there he knows. He's getting to know some of these Jewish people, but they're a bit suspicious of him, and those that are welcoming him are a bit above themselves. We know that from 1 Corinthians 2 as well. And then, finally, Silas and Timothy arrive. What's he going to ask them? How, how are the churches doing? Did they just give up and turn back to Judaism as soon as I walked away? Did they just think, man, this is just too hot to handle, I can't cope with this? Because think... They had no forefathers in the faith. They'd not been raised in a stable Christian environment. They'd not had dad who sort of sat down with them when they were teenagers and talked them through all the hormonal turmoil they're going through. They'd not had mum as a great role model to, to walk them through those same years and prepare them for the vicissitudes of adult life and for the the hardships they might experience and the hostility they might experience because they're followers of Jesus. They got the gospel, they got Paul for two months. And that's it. And so, you could imagine the scene. There's Paul waiting in Corinth and suddenly there's this knock at the door. And it's Silas and Timothy. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 3, Paul tells us how he reacted. Just look with me. This is one of the most wonderfully relationally real moments in Paul's life. And there are a few of those. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. Literally, it says something like this. 1 Thessalonians 3 6. But just now, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. There is nothing that you could have said that would have lifted Paul's spirits more than this. Those believers, those baby Christians, the one who is sitting there, the ones, sorry, who is sitting there at the start of this sermon, nodding internally when I talked about how you've really never had anybody to show you the way. You've really never had years and years of great Christian role models. 
this little church founded in a hurry and then growing up through persecution are still walking faithfully in spite of their affliction. And this is the first of the three characteristics of this community that I want to spend just a moment on as we close. They were afflicted, but they remained faithful. They had, talk about terrible discipleship program. I mean, they had nothing, really. The Apostle Paul for a couple of weeks, a few weeks maybe, half a dozen sermons. And then at the end of the third synagogue sermon, it's right, okay, let's get rid of this guy. And yet, look how he writes to them. And I want to jump through a few texts in 1 Thessalonians. Can you see what the Lord can do with people who've received really the barest minimum of instruction in the ways of the Lord? 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Just think about that. They became imitators of a man whom they'd known for couple of months because they were paying attention for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit even while Paul was there it seemed that the hostility was brewing among some of their uh, fellow citizens so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia <laughs> like this these people who've had nobody to teach them much at all. They get a few weeks with Paul. And now they're the example to everybody else. And I'll show you in a second exactly what kind of an example they are. You get at chapter 2, verse 13. We thank God for this also, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now that's a key to so much about the Thessalonians. The thing that set them apart was that when they heard the word of God, they took it so seriously that we, we can't afford just to rock up at Bible study and have a five-minute quiet time sort of three days a week and think that we're going to make it through the next six months, year, the rest of our Christian lives. When we heard this man stand before us and proclaim Christ, we received those words as the word of the living God. Can you see how they were gripped by what they heard? Get to the point, I mean, they've got some instruction in chapters 3 and 4, but by the end, chapter 5, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Now that surely is not, I'm sure he will. It's like a, he will do it. The living God who's faithful, who's grasped you in spite of every natural disadvantage. He's faithful. He'll do it. And so he's kept them faithful in, in spite of their afflictions. Secondly, very briefly, if you um, take note of where Paul ended up in Corinth, he spent a long time there and wrote to the Corinthians a couple of times. He probably wrote to them four times. Two of those letters made their way into the New Testament. On one occasion, he has to touch on the example of giving. There's a famine in Jerusalem. been a series of famines over several years. 
And he's got to try and persuade the Corinthians, who are wealthy. They live in a very uh, prosperous part of uh, Greece, in Achaia, because geographical location really helps them to make money from all the traffic that goes through. He has to try and persuade them to give generously, to support the Christian brothers back in Jerusalem who are dying of starvation. Who does he point to as an example of sacrificial giving? It's the Macedonians. It's those people from Thessalonica. Chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means. No, actually, they didn't. <laughs> As I can testify, Paul says, they gave more than they were able to give. So gripped with this church, was this church, not just with truth, which they were gripped with, but with the life that must flow from the convictions they had. They, they realized, wow, there's, the, those Jews back in Jerusalem, we're sharing in their spiritual blessings. We're probably able to share in our material blessings as well. That's exactly the point Paul makes. And so he holds them up as an example of faithfulness and specifically generosity because though they were poor, they remained generous. And so you look at this church and think, what could possibly go wrong? And really, it's just one thing. There are a few things scattered around in 1 Thessalonians, but the one thing that starts to go wrong in 2 Thessalonians 3, I'm going to close with this just very briefly. They were inquisitive, inquiring theologically, like the best of the Bereans, actually, always searching the Scriptures. And why would a church like that ever go sideways? The answer is actually flaky eschatology. They've got their eschatology in a tangle. Uh, Paul had promised them that one day soon the Lord Jesus Christ would come and act in judgment against their old covenant Israelite persecutors. He says so in um, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He speaks of the Lord granting relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. There'll come a day when you'll be persecuted no more. But they had misinterpreted it to imagine that that day was tomorrow or maybe next week or maybe a couple of weeks, but not the 20 years that it actually was. And so it seems that many of them had just stopped working altogether. They'd given up on their daily vocations. They'd given up on all the things, all the responsibilities the Lord had given them. They just kicked back and, let's just kick back and relax and wait for Jesus to come. Because eschatology, no, 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 no. And this is where the generosity becomes a problem. Paul has to say, look, stop giving, stop giving food to people who won't work. If a man will not work, he shall not eat, he says. And so you get, remarkably, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in a letter which is warm and gracious to a community that Paul loves, about which he has so many positive things to say, you get the most brutal takedown of people whose misunderstandings and, frankly, in some cases, it seems obsession with Jesus coming to intervene in time and space and history had actually stopped them from doing their daily work. And that's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is about. They were inquisitive, but they had become distracted, and Paul will not have anything of it. So, just pause one second and go back to where we began and consider how many among us, in one way or another, 
need both to learn from these role models, the Thessalonian Christians, and also to be like them, to grow in faithfulness and maturity in spite of the fact that they didn't have great Christian parents to raise them either. And what I trust we will discover is that, frankly, we may have run into many of their problems as well. And if that's the case, then this letter, as it unfolds before us, will be exactly what we need to get us back on track. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your patience, the miraculous power of your word by which you have shaped all of us here in one way or another. Grasp us by your word, we pray. Do not let us meander vaguely through life, but seize us with the urgency of our present callings. Empty us of those excuses that would cause us to blame our past, and may we take hold of Christ as these remarkable men and women did. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.